Take four. Hello and welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research's Centennial Commemorations, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organised by the study group. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Burton Centre for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeast Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit the website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. I'm Elise Bath, and in today's episode, my colleague, Dr. Barbara Warnock, and I will be talking about the experiences of Roma and Sinti people before, during, and after the Nazi regime. Barbara, hello. Would you like to introduce yourself and maybe say a little bit about the library where we work? Yeah, sure. So I'm Barbara Warnock, and I'm the Senior Creator and Head of Education at the Wiener Holocaust Library. Um, And as part of my role, I cover things to do with exhibitions, events, educational workshops and so on. And yeah, we both work at Wiener Holocaust Library in Russell Square in central London. And the library is um, about the world's oldest collection of archival material on the Nazi era and the Holocaust. And it actually very originally has its roots in some senses in struggles against Nazism in the 20s and early 1930s in um, Germany. And we've got really extensive documentation about the Nazi era, um, the Holocaust, post-war situations, refugees, other genocides, um, and other things. So it's a really kind of interesting and varied collection. So Elise works on a very sort of specific archive that we've got. So perhaps you could tell us a bit about your role. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So as Barbara said, I work on a a specific archive that is called the International Tracing Service Digital Archive. This is a collection of over 30 million documents from the Nazi era and the post-war period. So the Nazi era documents are things like concentration camp records, prison lists, deportation lists, that sort of thing. And then we also have the post-war material, which is often connected with survivors. Um, So it shows things like survivors claiming or uh, applying for assistance from international refugee organizations, um, emigrating records from the DP camps, things like that. It's a huge archive and we use it, like we mainly use it to research the experiences of individual victims during the Holocaust, but we also use it to support the library's work more broadly, like to, to help find information for exhibitions and so on. Um, so yeah, that's what that's who Barbara and I are and where we work. Um, so yeah, today we're going to be chatting a bit about the experiences of Roma and Sinti before, during and after the, the Nazi era. Um, so like maybe we should talk briefly as well about how we actually started getting interested in this, in this sort of hmm. part of history. Yeah. Yeah, so so for me, I suppose it came about because after I started working at the library, I became aware of some of the really interesting document collections that the library's got about the subject of Nazi persecution of Roma and Sinti. And, you know, it's often a somewhat overlooked or forgotten um, topic. People don't often know all that much about it, if even if they're kind of dimly aware that 
Rome were persecuted by the Nazis. But the library's got some really important documents about this. So, for example, there's a number of our eyewitness accounts to the Holocaust that were collected by library staff in the 1950s that are actually, um, for, you know, really quite long and detailed and interesting accounts by Roma survivors. Um, and so those are some documents that kind of first piqued my interest in this, really. We've also got um, an amazing collection deposited originally in the late 60s by Donald Kenrick. And um, Kenrick was working with another researcher, Grattan Puxen, and they launched one of the earliest efforts to more systematically document the, gen the genocide against the Roma and then deposited some really important documents in our collection. So these include, for example, um, summaries um, of individual Roma survivors' experiences or their families' experiences during the Nazi era. Um, and so looking through those was also kind of something that led me into looking and researching more into the Roma genocide. We've also yeah. got some really interesting photographs, and I think you know a bit more in a, in a way about the photographs we've got in the collection about this. Uh, yeah, because I, I did work, at, did a maternity cover here at the library uh, and worked at the photo archivist for a year. So I've, I've got a bit of insight into the into the photo archive. But yeah, there's some there's some wonderful photos in our collection. Um, one in particular of a Roma um, a Roma woman who was a survivor, and she'd been through various concentration camps. And we have this amazing photograph of her. Is it from the fifties or sixties? It's from the nineteen sixties, actually. Yeah. Post post yeah post war, obviously, um, East Germany. Mm -hmm. And you know, she, there's this photograph of her, and she just looks so happy and proud and empowered almost and then you can still see sort of the the Auschwitz tattoo on her arm and then she but she's just so she's so un, she's not defined by her persecution at all and it just seems to me like a very joyful picture uh, so that was one that yeah. sort of piqued my interest um another thing that sort of that got that got me more interested in in this sort of part of history was was helping you with the preparation for your exhibition so you know you, ha you had these um testimonies from survivors mm. and then yeah. I could use that information to go into the ITS digital archive and then pull out the documents that that evidence that their their persecution and quite often we were able to find like new details or confirm things that people had said so it was like this really uh really useful cooperation between mm. between us and between the, the the resources that we were using yeah, yeah, I think for both of us, um, it was a really great project to work on the exhibition that the library had um, about this subject. So this was, what, 2019 to 20, I think it yeah. sort of ended just before the pandemic started. Um, and our exhibition, you can find out more about this online, but was called Forgotten Victims, the Nazi Genocide of the Roma and Sinti. And we kind of gave an overview of this history, but also within that told a number of individual stories and yeah we were able to use different call upon kind of different sources in the library's collections for this from these kind of summaries of people's experiences which often came from interviews conducted with survivors to you know the library's eyewitness accounts and then go to the international tracing service archive and actually find out more about people's experiences and um the subject of the photograph that Elise has described and that photograph we actually kind of ended up 
using as our kind of lead image or marketing image um, for that exhibition, we were able to find out more about her story um, from looking at relevant documents in the collection, you know, and, and get some, you know, a bit quite limited insight into her experiences of, for example, forced medical experimentation in, in Auschwitz. Mm. So yeah, it was a really, um, it was a really great, great project. And I, you know, it I, might be worth you saying a little bit more maybe about, um, you know, perhaps about the ITS and, and why it's a particularly good source of information potentially about this topic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, in a nutshell, the reason the ITS Digital Archive is such a useful tool in exploring this history is because of its size and the range of documentation it contains. Um, and we're talking their documents from pre-war, post, um, during the, the persecution and post-war. Yeah. So I think that one of the earliest documents that I've found um, in the ITS Digital Archive is actually like a, a more of a, a tract outlining Nazi ideology in relation to the Roman Sinti. Uh, and it was, right. um, it's like a, a memorandum, I suppose, titled Denkschrift über die Zugeine Frage which would be sort of memorandum on the gypsy question. It was written in like the mid thirties and it's this very racist tract that really clearly yeah. defines um, or articulates the, the Nazi ideology that Roma and Sinti were sort of racially inferior, racially alien, asocial, this threat, you know, there's lots of the, the, all these sort of usual slurs and, and accusations that you would expect in this, in this tract. So that's one of the early records that I found. Um, it's interesting that that's in, the archive, because the ITS archive, you know, is originally set up to trace individuals who were lost or missing during the war and the Holocaust. And but you know, it's interesting to find that there's these kind of statements of Nazi policy or ideology contained within the archive as well. Yeah, I really do think the ITS digital archive is remarkable. It's just there's hmm. so much material in there. You know, I've worked on it for five years now, um, and I'm still, you know very aware of its scale ahead of me like it's this massive collection there's there's almost sort of endless research possibilities in it um no it's a fantastic resource and you know there's often um you know been perhaps an issue in trying to research the Roma genocide is that there are perhaps less i think you might be right to say sort of far less survivor accounts than there are from other groups potentially and um so the ITS archive, so, you know, what we found was it, it actually contains, it may not contain perhaps the voice of, say, Roma victims or survivors, but it does contain documents that help to tell the story of, of individual stories that often, you know, haven't been told elsewhere or researched elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of, of the material that it holds from, from the, the persecution itself, um, there's material like we've got copies of uh, the uh, camp, oh, sorry, records from Auschwitz, from the Zagoyna uh, Lager, so the so-called gypsy camp. Uh, and one of the main resources that we have is the prisoner registry book for this camp. So that contains- so actually names people. Yeah, yeah, it names, like, that gives the name, date of birth, place of birth, where the, you know, date of arrival in the camp, that kind of thing. And I think this And for like, some people, presumably this is sort of the only- record that mm -hmm. perhaps remains of what happened to them which is awful to think about but it's so good yeah. I suppose at least to have that name 
Absolutely. There's something like 21,000 people named in these documents. You know, I'm talking specifically about the the, the prisoner registr- registers from the uh, so-called gypsy camp. But interestingly, even, you know, we, we very nearly didn't even have that resource because it was it was ordered to be destroyed um, by the by the SS running the camp. And it was actually the, the Polish prisoners assigned to clerical duties in the camp who hid them and saved them. Mm. Um, and I think they actually buried them. And the first few pages right. of the scan, you can see the dampness on it. And there's some there's some names that are lost. Sort of the pages have sort of rotted by being by being kept in damp conditions. But yes, it was so close to losing losing that resource as well. Mm. Yeah, um, I mean, and I suppose I mean that is a feature of um, genocide against the Jews and Roma that unfortunately so many incidents, you know, weren't necessarily properly recorded or names have been lost, mm-hmm. um, but it's you know ITS does contain all of this this detail and a lot of detail often about individual because it, it also contains kind of individual records of yeah. detailing people's experiences of perhaps deportation and different camps that they were sent to and so on. Yes, yeah, you're right. So as well as those the documents that I described earlier, these sort of records that, that list lots of people. Yeah, you have individual sort of prisoner registration forms where you can sometimes get quite a lot of uh, individual of information about um, an individual person and their path of persecution so you can sometimes uh, sometimes they're listed along with relatives as well so you can begin to to rebuild a, a family tree almost but you're quite right as well it is worth considering the fact that even though the ITS archive is you know huge it contains information on something like 17 and a half million people but there are still these gaps in it and yeah. um you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, there'll be some people who who aren't recorded anywhere. That would be particularly the case um, for people who weren't murdered in the camps, but say were, were killed near their homes in shooting actions in sort of rural Eastern and, and Central Europe. You know, there, there's not necessarily going to be paperwork that names those victims. So, you know, no. I always need to kind of remember that there are people who there will be no trace of in the archive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, th- I think also it's probably worth saying with the International Traces Service Archive that, um, you know, most of the documentation would be kind of Nazi documents. So it's very much the perspective of the perpetrators mm-hmm. and not the voice of victims or survivors. But, um, you know, as we've mentioned, the library does have some documents that, you know, either actual eyewitness accounts by survivors or at least a kind of a summary of a conversation that somebody had had with the survivors so so kind of sometimes can give us a little bit of of insight Mm -hmm. at least into people's experiences yeah but it's like what we were mentioning earlier it's sort of using multiple sources um in cooperation with each other and sort of taking what you can from different uh different resources to try and build a better and more complete picture i suppose yeah yeah and i think i wonder if it might be worth us now maybe kind of talking a little bit about the historical context perhaps yeah i think that would be re- i think that'd be really uh useful to sort of set the scene a little yeah i think one thing you know that you notice unfortunately in looking at this history and i think that we've both felt is that um yeah there's a lot of continuity even if the nazi era saw a kind of real intense intensification and escalation of persecutory policies that there was a lot of continuity with what came before and to some extent what has continued afterwards as well you know so 
19th century, um, there were many anti-Roma measures in place across Europe and even in you know, Weimar Germany, there was actually a law passed, for example, in Bavaria in 1926, which um, was called the law combating gypsies, vagabonds, and the and the workshy. And you know, so this is this is a kind of targeted measure, partly against Roma, happening during the Weimar era. Mm -hmm. We we see some of those um, those types of documents in the early records in the ITS archive as well, where it's you had notices saying, you know, all. Sigoyna, uh, to use the term they would have used, um, must register, they must carry these cards, they must check in with their police. So yeah, it's absolutely the, the beginning, the first stages of the Nazi persecution were very much a continuation of what had already been, really. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's probably worth us just saying that the term Sigoyna is the German word for gypsies, and it, it's kind of got rather offensive connotations, um, but not surprisingly, it was the term that um, the Nazis used and the term that's on Nazi era documents. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, as you, as you mentioned, the initial Nazi era was in, in some ways just a continuation, but there were, there were measures um, that started fairly early on, which increased persecution against Roma and Sinti in, in Germany. So, you know, by the mid thirties, Roma were banned from some occupations, for example, mm -hmm. after the Nuremberg race laws were enacted, the Nazi regime clarified that they also applied to Roma and not just to Jews. So, you know, Roma were banned from intermarriage with um, non-Roma Germans and so on. So um, a lot of these, these measures did kind of start to get going in the mid-1930s. And there's a lot of parallels, though, with what happened to the Jewish communities of Europe, though the situation isn't exactly the same either. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's what we what we see. And I think um, you also get the development of, of camps. And we've, we've seen this in a lot of the records that you've looked at as well. Um, so the yeah. beginnings of a process by which people were sent to camps. And often, I think I'm right in saying in, in the 30s, Roma who were sent to camps, they often, they might have been identified as being sent because the Nazis determined them to be asocial or antisocial, is that right? Yeah, yeah, so um, the term that you'll often see on uh, prisoner registration forms is asocial, so, you know, behaving in a way that is contradictory to the, the betterment of the Reich, say, it was a pretty much a catch-all term. Um, but as time progresses, you see more and more reason for arrest just being given as uh Zigoyna. so mm. yeah as as Barbara pointed out whenever I'm saying the word Zigoyna, I am saying it in sort of quote marks um it's not a term I would use uh lightly um and so I think that that's quite revealing this reason mm. for arrest it's not anything to do with the behavior anymore it, it's becoming more and more to do with who these people are so it's becoming much more racially motivated rather than or, or rather much more explicitly racially motivated rather than um, motivated by behaviour. And I think we should say that um, people arrested because they were so-called antisocial by the Nazis were not necessarily yes. um, showing antisocial behaviour, yeah. but it was just a way of the Nazis kind of targeting people that they didn't want to kind of join in their mm -hmm. so-called people's, people's community. So there were kind of stereotypical assumptions about Roma being involved in antisocial behaviour that 
became a way in which the Nazis and previous regimes and subsequent regimes, um, a way in which um, those regimes have targeted Roma as a group. But as Elise says, um, you know, over time, Nazi policy did become more more explicitly racialized in in relation to Roma. So you know, Roma weren't perhaps at the heart of Nazi racial thinking in the way that that Jews were. But you can certainly see, you know, by the late 1930s, by about 1938, that it's quite clear that um, those, you know, many in the SS, for example, would have um, perceived Roma as um, a kind of undesirable racial group. Um, and, you know, there was a kind of development of um, pseudo-scientific racial research in relation to Roma as well um, from about the mid-30s onwards. So this idea of Roma as an a undesirable racial group who the Nazis wanted to target along with Jews did, you know, wasn't necessarily there from the start, but developed over, over time with, you know, really murderous consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And this, um, you know, the the deportation and the, the persecution sort of sort of build up to this genocidal uh, intent, uh, which sort of culminates in the in the Auschwitz um, gypsy camp, uh, which I mentioned earlier, uh, which was uh, that was the, the it, camp was, the it was founded in, in, in 43. So, yeah, I think there was a process. Um, um, was it founded in 43? I, I just double check that. I just said that. And then I'm not sure. And, and we're not at all saying, by the way, that before the establishment of the gypsy camp, that sort of no Roma and Sinti were, were deported. Of course they were. And of course they were persecuted sort of dreadfully. But this, um, the gypsy camp is almost, uh, Auschwitz oh. is almost like emblematic of this crescendo of genocidal intention. Um, yeah, I mean, it had been developing from, you know, first mid-30s, some Roma in Germany were held in internment camps, you then had deportations to places like Dachau um, from the late 1930s, and then deportations um, from 1940 um, out of Germany into um, ghettos and then camps in, in the east, and um, so you kind of had this gradual escalation of of, of policies in in Austria in 1941. So, you know, these, these when Austria had been taken over by the Germans from March 1938, these kind of policies had arrived in Austria. And in 19, 1941, for example, 5,000 Austrian Roman Sinti were deported first to Woods Ghetto in occupied Poland and then to Kelmno Death Camp, where I think I'm right in saying they were amongst the first actually to be murdered with gas is that right yeah that's um Helmno and, and the Minsk area were where were where the gas the murder by gas was developed so yeah I think I think yes saying that. yeah 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 yes so you can see you know really exactly the same kind of policies um as were directed at Jews being directed at Roma I mean as I said that Roma weren't quite such a kind of focus of attention and ideology for the Nazis as Jews were. So I think the kind of efforts at genocide were sometimes a little bit less systematic, um, which seems to have resulted in a higher proportion of Europe's Roma surviving these horrific events than, than is the case, case for Jews. But nevertheless, all of the same kind of ideas and policies are there in terms of um, incarceration, deportation, to ghettos and camps, mass murder, and so on. And yeah. I think, you know, the Auschwitz um, 
so-called gypsy camp that you've you've mentioned. I think it was known for its you know, quite horrific conditions. Yeah, families were allowed to stay together in the, in the um, yeah gypsy camp. So there are so there are these sort of odd differences. Um, yeah, because because the situation with Jews was he, people have always been separated, mm. families have always been broken up, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Whereas here it seems like the you know the the gypsy population of the camp were incarcerated together. I think I'm right in saying that they were allowed to keep their clothes, their own clothes, didn't have to change into the prison garb. So, so they were, they were treated slightly differently as well. But you know, I'm not saying yeah. they were treated better, as you said, that the conditions there were horrific in in that section of the camp. Um, and then, of course, the camp itself was uh, liquidated, or that part of the camp was was, mm. was liquidated in August '44. Yeah. So yeah, you did. You saw, you know, the mass murder of mm. all of those inhabitants of yeah. the camp. So. Yeah. People had been allowed to remain in family groups, but then ultimately, yeah, you know, the whole camp, as you say, was was liquidated to use a kind of yes Nazi euphemism. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also and it's worth... interesting actually to think about some of the eyewitness accounts that the libraries got because one of them um, by a Sinti survivor from Austria, Hermine Horvath, actually talks a little bit about the so-called gypsy camp and. But also about some of the, what she witnessed. So, for example, um, you know, chil- children targeted for sexual sexual exploitation by the SS, and you know, really kind of horrific events like that, which shine a light on those kind of aspects of the Holocaust that don't always get much attention. You know, the yeah. kind of maltreatment mm-hmm. of people, including sexual exploitation that occurred in camps, and you know, happened to children as well as mm. to adults. Yeah. I think it's just worth mentioning, like while we're while we're just still on the, the gypsy camp, you know, it's it's always worth reflecting on the resistance that was offered up mm. um, as that part of the camp was being targeted for complete yes. destruction, and there was this quite prolonged and sort of deeply brave resistance to to um, to to, the, to what was happening. Um, I also sort of just want to mention because I know sometimes you know if we're talking about sort of oh this section of the camp was was cleared and everyone was murdered. It's like, well, how do you have eyewitness testimonies? How do you have like Hermine Horvath's testimony? Yes, yes, a good point. Mm. So it's worth knowing that, you know, a number of people from that part of the camp would be or were transported to other camps within within the Nazi regime. So I think um, Hermine Horvath was transferred to Ravensbrück and that's why she's managed to survive. Mm. Others were, other men in particular were transported to Buchenwald to as as uh, forced labor battalions so yeah that's why you can you know some people did manage to survive but often it was sort of more more luck look and, that, and this was as slave laborers yeah as slave laborers yeah so um, yeah there's always an element and so as with survival. the genocide against the jews um you know pe- younger people though not too young but you know perhaps perhaps sort of older teenagers and people in their 20s were somewhat more likely to survive because they might be selected for labor and obviously to be selected for Nazi slave labor was a horrific fate but it did did give people of a certain age a a slightly higher chance of survival yeah it wasn't her her mean Horvath she was sort of in her early 20s wasn't she so Mm, yeah yeah Mm -hmm. I mean she she suffered a lot of maltreatment and was not long lived you know she she died it would seem partly because of the maltreatment she'd experienced not that long actually after she gave testimony still as quite a young woman to the Wiener Library in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, shall we? So I think, you know, perhaps it, we could think about 
you know, I don't think it really is a question anymore, actually, but sometimes the question has been asked about, you know, whether the poli Nazi policies against the Roma were genocide. And I, I just don't really think that is a question anymore. Yeah. And, you know, the, the German state actually recognised it as a genocide in, in 1984. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we tend to use the term genocide in relation to these events. And obviously, in relation to the mass killing of Jews, the term Holocaust is usually used. But there, there's, it's just probably worth saying there's a couple of other terms that you sometimes here used in relation to the, mm -hmm. the genocide against Roma. So like Parimos is one, Farimos, Samada Paripen. So, you know, mm -hmm. various different terms and they have different meanings, you yeah, know, from mass killing to devouring. And... Mm. So I suppose, I mean, it's very similar with, um, if we think about the term for like Jewish Holocaust, Shoah, you know, different groups prefer different terms for, um, for yeah. various reasons. Um, I think one of the terms is it Faraj Moss has sort of a connotation of sexual assault. So I, I think some people it can do, use, yeah. yeah, don't like to use it for that for that term. So yeah, we tend to use the term uh, genocide, and, and yeah, I think yeah. I think surely now the debate has been closed as to whether yeah, it was it, genocide yeah, and, or not. It and hopefully, was. Mm. yeah, to listeners, you can hear um, from what we've described that this was you know the kind of racial racial targeting of a group for persecution, incarceration, mass killing, and so on. Destruction of the people, destruction of the culture, that was what was the aim. It was a genocide. Yes, limitation. absolutely. And actually, it's probably also important to say that part of the policy was sometimes, and particularly perhaps in Germany and Austria, but um, one of sterilization. So is that is a way of trying to kind of prevent the group continuing, mm -hmm. was to target Roma and Sinti for um, forced sterilization policies um, and so that obviously you know was another abuse of uh, you know kind of genocidal abuse of um yeah. some of the members of the Roman Sinti community yeah absolutely um so is it worth now sort of reflecting on what will have happened to those people who survived um this genocide yeah yeah, yeah so you know recent research tends to indicate that up to about um, half a million people, Roman Sinti, were murdered um, in this genocide. Um, it is kind of slightly difficult, partly because in some places of a absence of um, detailed records to be 100% certain, um, but those tend to be kind of, kind of estimates. Um, you know, some people would think those were actually a bit low, some people might think that was a bit high, but that tends to be the kind of current estimate. But yes, there's obviously many more people who had experienced persecution and then did survive. Well, not to say many more, but I think, I mean, I think in general, it um, tends to be said that it was maybe, maybe about a quarter of Europe's Roma population were murdered. So therefore, yes, I suppose a majority of people did did survive some of whom had had direct experiences of these these things um and so yeah perhaps we turn to sort of think about the situation post-war so i think sometimes there's a bit of a misapprehension of you know it's the end of the war camps been liberated the end and it's like not at all you yeah know, liberation was absolutely a process it was hugely drawn out um you've got millions of people 
displaced across Europe. I, I think I read somewhere recently, it was like 40 million people were displaced in, in one mm. way or another. Um, so to try and actually manage and organize that group of people is a, you know, it's, it's quite the undertaking. Um, yeah, it's a bit mind-boggling. Yeah, I know. And thinking as, as well about kind of the, the situation in which this was happening, you've got petrol shortages, resources shortages, you know, how, how did, yeah, it's absolutely amazing what, what they did manage to achieve in lots of ways. So you'll have people who survived the camps being, um, not all of them, but uh, some of them will have lived in displaced persons camps. So these were set mm -hmm. up sort of around, uh, around Europe to house uh, refugees, survivors, that sort of thing. And the ITS archive that I work with has a lot of material from those, from those camps. So that's a really useful tool for sort of seeing members of the Roma and Sinti communities beginning to sort of rebuild their lives. You know, you see marriages, in, children. In the context of DP camps. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then it's what, another thing that's really helpful is when these Roma and Sinti survivors uh, made applications to the international refugee organizations for help and support. Now this might be, right. in the very early days, it would literally have been sort of food, clothes, you know, very basic humanitarian needs were, were being met. But when you start to see these applications coming in a bit later on, it's things like we want help emigrating, we want, or we want help sort of learning a trade and that sort of thing. And these documents can be really detailed. So they're, they're sort of a fantastic way to sort of see what people have been through, what their hopes are, and how they're living in, in like the displaced persons sort of world, really. And these are forms filled in by Roman survivors in camps. In, in displaced persons camps. In, yeah. Yes, in displaced yeah. persons camps. So yeah, you get kind of maybe some insight into mm. what it, they're feeling and their experiences. Do you know what's really interesting in those, I say interesting and it, it's very depressing, is you see as time passes and as um, the persecution becomes further and further in the past, uh, an increasing hardening of opinion from the authorities in relation to Roma and Sintis. So you start to really? see, yeah, it's so, it's so awful. Like in the immediate sort of weeks and months when there was no question of, you know, a person suffering, if you've been in the concentration camp system for a few years, I don't think anyone is going to deny you've been a victim of Nazi persecution. Mm. But once those sort of physical signs of abuse had sort of faded or recovered you see this suspicion coming back in where authorities are starting to say like well were you targeted racially or were you targeted because you're actually yeah. a criminal and you start to see this and so yes it kind of not necessarily there suit in the immediate moment that the, the war had ended but kind of creeping back and, and showing that sort of continuity yeah. that we talked about in terms of prejudicial mm -hmm attitudes towards towards Roma that you know were there before the Nazi era and unfortunately remained after I mean there was a case I remember actually from preparing the exhibition um where we've got a little copy of a, a, a person's kind of life history really that's been gathered as um, a form of testimony and deposited at the library and this is um Hans Brown and he was from a Sinti family from from Germany and he sort of describes different aspects of of his pre-Nazi life and so on but then actually looking in the ITS um, you actually found some documents relating to much later and to his attempts to claim compensation yeah. mm -hmm. um, post-war and in, in the sort of late 40s and into the early 50s and um, it was quite horrifying to see in that documentation that after he launched his first attempt 
claim compensation, a German criminal police inspector kind of launched an investigation on him and, and wrote to the International Tracing Service and said, um, you know, we think that this person may have not been actually held for racial reasons, but may have been held by the Nazis because he was a criminal. And that would mean, you know, he wasn't entitled to compensation. But, you know, the, the ITS documents actually didn't support that idea at all, did no. they? No, because the reason for arrest was given to Goyner, that he's been arrested because of who he is. Um, and what's really galling about, about that particular example is, um, you know, like I said, I've been working with the ITS archive for four, five years now. I've researched the case that research experiences of more than more than a thousand victims of Nazi persecution. And I have never yeah. seen a letter like that written about a Jewish right. victim. So right. I start to think, well, why is he writing it about Hans Brown? And it's this suspicion yes. is just a, a, sort of an assumed criminality because he's a Roma yes. is just, um, yeah, hugely depressing. Mm. Yes, definitely. And I think, you know, that Roma did face these enormous barriers to trying to claim compensation and recognition after the war, really, because of these kind of prejudicial attitudes and assumptions that yeah. somehow almost the Nazi persecution and targeting of Roma had been justified or ex was explainable or whatever. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a disturbing history. And I think there was, you know, there's an ongoing struggle for recognition that's still is present with us today. I think, I think the, the example that I came across that jarred with me the most, I thought it was absolutely horrific. I sort of doubted what I was reading at first was um, mm. the fact that a fellow called Joseph Eichberger and he had been, uh, during the Nazi period, he'd been in charge of the transportation of Roma to Auschwitz. So that's what we were talking about earlier, you know, this nasty rotation right. of thousands of people to their death. And this man, this Eichberger, had organized and facilitated that. So that's sort of what Eichmann did for the Jewish yeah. population. He was, he was sort of um, the equivalent for, uh, for the organizing the genocide. And they're both in the SS? I think so, yes. Um, so he was this fellow Eichberger, he survived, um, he was arrested by the British and held as a prisoner of war till March 1947, at which point he was classified as what was known as a Mitläufer, so literally like a running along with, um, rather than sort of a virulent Nazi, so he was allowed to kind of go out and um, so it's as if he's, he's just someone who kind of went along with the Nazi yeah. regime but didn't actually very actively participate, wasn't really an yeah. active perpetrator of crimes. Mm. This, this, this was not complete true. misrepresentation. Yeah. I literally was all, you know, responsible for the deportation of thousands to Auschwitz. But what really galls me is that after his release, he was appointed as the head of the gypsy department, so-called gypsy department, at the Bavarian police um, in Munich. And he was actually put in charge of the so-called gypsy files. And you think, mm. how, how is it possible that a man who has been so instrumental in the genocide of a, or the attempted genocide of a people responsible for the deaths of thousands is now after the war, not only released after three years, but actually put in a position of power over those same people again. It's just... I couldn't believe it when I read it. I just thought it was absolutely... No, it's quite yeah. horrific. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I don't... In terms of the Hans Brown case that we've mentioned, this criminal police inspector who seems to have kind of wanted to investigate him, um, I don't know anything about him, but it, it might very well be the case that he was a criminal police inspector during the Nazi regime. And I think that's one 
problem that Roma faced in gaining, you know, recognition and compensation was, you know, it's quite in the early years um, after the war, there's quite a lot of kind of in West Germany, at least continuity of personnel. Yeah, um, yeah, hugely. Yeah. In, in security service and police and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, though, I mean, there was this sort of attitude, though, it seems to, this continued suspicion, um, an assumption of criminality does seem to sort of continue all through various levels of, of sort of West German government at the time. So I know in, in 1959, there was a federal Supreme Court decision that what had been done to the Roman Sinti could not be compared with what had been done to the, to the Jewish population uh, because, and I'm quoting here, because Jews do not possess the characteristics that had turned the gypsy living a gypsy lifestyle into a national plague long before the advent of national socialism. So you think, like, can you imagine sort of trying to claim compensation, trying to sort of gain any yeah. form of justice when the, you know, you're dealing with a bureaucracy that is so when so you're people you. referred to as the national plague mm, yeah it's, yeah it's very um disturbing and um you know i think there has been more recognition mm -hmm. um in recent decades i think i might have said earlier there was recognition from the german government in 1984 it's actually 1982 if i did say 1984 <laughs> um but you know there has there has um been some memorialization but often with memorials, it's tended to be kind of Roma groups pushing for the memorialization. It none of it has kind of been kind of been easy. And I think um, you know, everyone at the library was quite disturbed by the recent so-called comedy of Jimmy Carr in relation to this, which really seemed to reveal that a lot of people were really either quite ignorant about this or just mm. really didn't care. I thought it wasn't just the joke itself, yeah. which was offensive and uh, sort of taking the side of the Nazis. You think, is that really a side you want to be on? But what was more disturbing to me was the reaction of the crowd and the uh, whooping and the cheering and right. the following. And you just think, I think that, that week when that all came out, I'd have been researching the case of, of a little girl who was Roma and she'd been gassed to death in Auschwitz. And you just think... right. Do you, do you know what you're laughing at here? Um, and maybe yeah. that's the problem. Maybe that's kind of, maybe a lack of education is is um, partly to blame here. Yeah. I, know, I know when we worked with, um, with the Roma support group in Canning Town, yeah. they told me uh, the story of, they were talking about um, a girl in their community who'd been in school learning about the Holocaust and she had put right. up her hand and said, oh, my family, you know, some of my family were killed by the Nazis. And the teacher had said, no, they weren't, don't lie. Oh, God. And so the teacher had no knowledge that Roma and Sinti were, were targeted in this way as well. So it's a bit mind blowing. Mm, a and, you know, yeah, I mean, the library is, is trying to work, you know, with things like our exhibition and company catalogue to try and inform people about this. And we've got you know, a website, an educational website, the Holocaust Explained, that looks at this as well. And um, and we are working on some educational resources. Um, so we kind of aim to try as far as we can to sort of do our, our bit um, in this area, but recognise it's, you know, there's still an awful lot of work to be done. And yeah, the Roma Support Group are a, a great organisation, mm -hmm. you know, kind of supporting in all sorts of different ways but in re recent years they've had more educational initiatives and oral history initiatives yeah. as well that have kind of 
brought them, I think, more into contact with this this history. Yeah. Um, so I suppose then, yeah, that sort of leads on to sort of think about where where else can people find out more about this topic? So, you know, like you said, we've got our collections, we've got um, the website as well, the Holocaust Explained. Um, there's, that, there's a book called The Roma Struggle for Compensation in Post-War Germany by Julia von dem Knesebeck. And I thought that was a really fantastic resource at, at sort of getting to grips with yeah. the post-war situation. Um, I thought that was yeah Becky Taylor's book Another Darkness Another Dawn mm -hmm. um, you know does an amazing job at telling the story of Roma history across many many centuries in Europe and you know as is maybe implied by her title you know unfortunately a lot of the history is is potentially to do with repression and persecution but not not you know not entirely she's also kind of looking at Romans and she just you know the role society communities the role role people were taking different societies the contribution being made by romans in the communities and so on so yeah that's that's a really that's a book i'd really recommend for a kind of longer wider mm. view though it also has got you know very powerful chapters about um the nazi era as well mm -hmm. so yeah so yeah the gillard margalit's book germany and its gypsies is also um of another one that we've kind of looked at as well yeah so there are resources out there um and you know it's i think it's very much worth exploring it is i think there is still um a bit of an exclusion from historical memory i think less so than they used to be um mm. but the recognition of what of what happened has come very late you know there was even something in the news i think it was just before covid about the memorial to the roman sinti in berlin possibly being destroyed because they want to build yeah. a metro line there and you think there's no i can't imagine a world in which no, it's so disrespectful yeah yeah so and i i haven't actually chased up on that so i don't know whether that has been shelved because of covid or maybe because of the you know the outcry but yeah. i think that was that was a really depressing so. moment because you just think oh yeah <laughs> yeah i can't imagine that would have been done under the memorial to the murdered jews of europe say Right, but the Roma yeah. and the Sinti memorial is somehow more disposable. Yeah, um, mm. I think perhaps on that depressing note, yes, yes. <laughs> we, we may draw our, um, our our podcast to an end. Um, so thank you very much for for listening to us, and and sort of bearing with us this time. Um, it's been really nice chatting to you about it again, Barbara. Yeah, it's been a, good been a while. to you. Yeah. So, so yeah, so please do visit our website, you know, listen to the other podcasts and thank you very much for your attention. Okay, bye. Bye.